0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: In the 1970s, Seymour Hersh exposed the Milai Massacre, Richard Nixon's domestic spy program, and he helped bring down a president with his journalism. Decades later, Hirsch blew the lid off of the torture at Abu Ghraib. Now, he's written his memoir, Reporter. Was any anybody more of a gangster than some of the leading
2: people who conducted the wars we had? We had gangsters all of our life in our society. And they, they, some of them were senators and some of them were, you know, secretaries of defense, were some murderous,
1: murderous people. On Thursday, June 21st, Cy Hirsch will be our special guest at a live show of Intercepted, taking place at the Music Hall of Williamsburg in New York. We'll also be joined by the lead ACLU attorney fighting the Trump and ICE deportation and family separation machine, and by educator and prison abolitionist Miriam Kaba.
0: Especially if you're liberal and progressive, stop calling for people to be locked up every day. Everybody shouldn't be going to prison. That's the point. Stop playing into those ideas that every time something happens, your first inclination is to think about the prosecution and court system
3: as the way to solve that problem.
1: The evening will also feature a live performance from the Iraqi-Canadian hip-hop artist, Narsi. Intercepted Live, Thursday, June 21st at 7 p.m at the Music Hall of Williamsburg. For tickets, log on to theintercept.com slash tickets. That's theintercept.com slash tickets.
3: I don't even think my country loves me back.
4: I think within the first minute, I'll know. Just my touch, my feel, that's what what I do. You know, the way they say that you know if you're gonna like somebody in the first five seconds, you ever hear that one? Something good is going to happen. All right, Charlie,
5: neighborhood of make-believe.
4: It's my honor today to address the people of the world following this very historic summit with Chairman Kim Jong-un of North Korea.
5: If you can do something with angry feelings, then you don't have to feel so angry anymore.
4: Rocket man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. There are
5: many healthy things you can do with your anger, things that don't hurt anybody.
4: We will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea.
5: Let's have some make-believe now.
4: Be nice. Be respectful. I don't want to be threatening.
5: Getting to be friends is like building bridges.
4: We had a great conversation. It was a very heartfelt conversation. I did it because nuclear is always number one to me. Nuclear is number one.
5: Some people think that friends are always happy.
4: That's what I do, my whole life has been deals. I've done great at it.
5: Always having fun.
4: We call them war games, and I call them war games, and they're tremendously expensive. We fly in bombers from Guam. I know a lot about airplanes.
5: Well, that's not true. Friends often have hard times and sad times.
4: I haven't slept in 25 hours, but I may be wrong. I mean, I may stand before you in six months and say, hey.
5: But friends can come together again and again and build a stronger and stronger friendship between each other.
4: As an example, they have great beaches. You see that whenever they're exploding their cannons into the ocean, right? They really enjoyed it, I believe, okay? So I'm gonna head back. I don't know about you folks, but it's been a long time since uh, I've taken it easy.
5: Please won't you be my neighbor? You never know, right? We never
4: know.
1: This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 60 of Intercepted.
4: Uh, and I'm doing something that I've wanted to do from the beginning. We stopped playing those war games that cost us a fortune. You know, we're spending a fortune every number of months. We're doing war games with South Korea. And I said, what's this costing? We're flying planes in from Guam and we're bombing empty mountains for practice. And I said, I want to stop that. And I will stop that. And I think it's very provocative, especially, George, since we're getting along. In other words, we're in the, of- the
1: bipartisan war party is in panic mode. The longest continuous war on the planet, the Korean War, may, may be on the path to ending. Donald Trump is certainly one of the most unreliable, untrustworthy, and just plain awful people to be in the command chair for this. But to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, you hope for peace with the president you have, not the one you want. I punished myself during the Trump-Kim summit by watching U.S. cable news. I bounced from CNN to Fox to MSNBC and on and on and on. Fox, of course, was on its own planet cheering on Trump, because Fox is a privatized version of state media.
2: How political opponents of the president are purposely trying to create artificial, unrealistic expectations so that they could, oh, this is a failure. When we've gotten so much out of this already before it even started, no one predicted that these talks would immediately result in the complete and total denuclearization of North Korea. This is going to be a process as the secretary.
1: The hypocrisy was certainly thick on Fox News, which has consistently for years agitated for obliterating North Korea. Its pundits ridiculed Barack Obama for suggesting that he might be willing to meet with the leaders of North Korea or Iran. But you know what? Hypocrisy sometimes has its virtues. If Trump can make Fox News get on the side of peace in Korea, we should all take that. But on the respectable networks, CNN and MSNBC, there was a lot of this,
2: just having parody look at the North Korean flags right next to the American flag. I mean, whoever thought we would see that it's-
4: of the two flags together is
5: diminishing to the u s. side. Let's take in fact, I would say it's somewhat disgusting. It is actually a debasement of of the American flag. This is a despotic regime that murders its own citizens. And so we're putting him on the same stage as the American president. Now, hopefully,
1: The North Koreans want to be treated as equals, gasp. The American flag next to North Korea's, the horror. And the conventional wisdom repeated by many, many pundits was that Trump was giving away the war farm. The message Trump sent by ripping up the Iran deal and then immediately meeting with the North Korean leader sent a message to the world that achieving nuclear weapons status protects you and prevents you from going the way of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Now, I don't deny that that is part of the message. At the same time, what about the context of all of this? Why did North Korea pursue nuclear weapons in the first place? Was it to be a global menace? Was it to change the regime in the United States? Or was it because of the threats from the U.S. and its allies? The U.S. committed systematic war crimes against North Korea In the 1950s, nearly 3 million people were killed in that war, the overwhelming majority of them Koreans. The U.S. conducted scorched earth bombing, wiped out entire cities, used napalm and other chemical weapons. The U.S. refused to recognize a North Korean government. It has regularly, for decades, threatened to invade North Korea, overthrow its government, obliterate the country, wipe it off the map. The U.S. stages nuclear war games, has 30,000 troops positioned on North Korea's border. And that war, the Korean War, is still not officially over. And the reason it's not over is largely because of the posture and actions of the United States. The communist system to the north
2: is based on hatred and oppression. It brutally attacks every form of human liberty and declares those who worship God to be enemies of the people. The United States condemns this provocative act. Once again, North Korea has defied the will of the international community, and the international community will respond.
1: The regime in North Korea must know they will only achieve security and prosperity by meeting their international obligations. Provocations of the sort we saw last night will only further isolate them. As we stand by our allies, strengthen our own missile defense, and lead the world in taking firm action in response to these threats. The problem is that in U.S. media, the world is almost always presented through the lens of America first, American exceptionalism. And that necessitates buying into the lie that the United States is actually an honest broker, the human rights respecter, the leader of the free world. As journalist Alan Nairn observed on Twitter, quote, the establishment Democrats and MSNBC have achieved the remarkable feat of coming across as more militaristic than both Trump and Kim Jong-un. Here is retired Admiral James Starvidis, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO forces and one of the names that was floated back in the 2016 election campaign as a possible Hillary Clinton running mate. Here he is speaking to Rachel Maddow on MSNBC defending U.S. imperialism and actually attacking Trump for suggesting that he might withdraw U.S. troops from Korea.
5: Our troops are there not as an act of goodwill to South Korea. They're there to enhance U.S. influence in the region. To ensure that we keep those sea lanes of communication open, that our trade can flow freely, that we have a voice in the events there for the exact same reason that we still have about 50,000 troops in Europe. Um, they're not there as an act of goodwill. They're there to accomplish U.S. national security objectives. So we draw them down at risk to those objectives, and it is very short sighted to say, Oh, yeah, this will be a twofer. We can reduce tension and save some money Mm. by getting our troops off the peninsula. Not the right way to think about this one.
1: Add to these types of statements that were made on MSNBC, the discredited never Trumpers and neocons and others and the parade of former heads of the CIA and the DNI. And you get a good sense of what I mean when I say the war party. In reality, throughout history, the U.S. has been the aggressor toward North Korea I defended Barack Obama when he said he would meet with leaders of countries we are told are our enemies. I defended him when he said he would do it even without precondition. I believe that's one of the only ways we can actually achieve any meaningful peace in this world.
4: Chairman Kim has told me that North Korea is already destroying a major missile engine testing site. That's not in your signed document. We agreed to that after The agreement was signed. That's a big thing. For the missiles that they were testing, the site is going to be destroyed very soon.
1: If Donald Trump can fumble and misspeak his way through a process that leads to an ending of the Korean War, that's a good thing, regardless of the character of the man responsible for kickstarting the process. Who are we to stand in the way of the wishes of a majority of people on the Korean Peninsula? More than 80% of South Koreans supported Trump's summit with Kim. Even more South Koreans back their own president, Moon Jae in. There are even some polls indicating that as much as 70% of the American public supported Trump meeting with Kim. The people who seem most passionately against this process are the Democrats and Republicans who constitute the war party. Yes, there are some dissenting Democrats, but what about the leaders? Senator Chuck Schumer is now threatening more sanctions. Neocons are high-fiving the establishment Democrats over their common position that boils down to supporting hostility, hard lines, and ultimately a continuation of the world's longest-running war.
6: Any agreement between the United States and North Korea must be permanent. Let us hope this isn't the final chapter in diplomacy with Pyongyang. President Trump and his team must take stock of what's happened What North Korea has achieved, what we have yet to achieve, and pursue again a tougher course.
1: Let's stop with all the pearl clutching over Trump meeting with a dictator. U.S. presidents do that all the time. Look at the disgusting love fest we were subjected to recently when Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, visited Washington. Heinous, anti-democratic, human rights-abusing monarchy. Or the Egyptian dictator, General Sisi. The U.S. meets with dictators all the time. And worse, it gives them weapons, intelligence, aid. It normalizes them in front of the world. Let's not act like any of these objections are really based on improving human rights for the hundreds of thousands of North Koreans in labor camps or dungeons or the hundreds of thousands of others who have no basic human rights. Americans need to take off the exceptionalism goggles. We need to understand that the people who have the most to gain or lose from all of this— are ordinary Koreans. And they overwhelmingly want this war to end. That's what matters here. With Moon Jae-in in power in South Korea, that peninsula has its best chance in decades to end a war that the United States played a central role in starting and continuing. Yes, Trump is a clown. He made an ass of himself on multiple occasions at this summit.
4: Getting a good picture everybody so we look nice and handsome. And beautiful. beautiful. I think
1: Trump publicly shared his dreams of opening resorts and hotels in North Korea.
4: They have great beaches. You see that whenever they're exploding their cannons into the ocean, right? I said, boy, look at that, wouldn't that make a great condo behind? And I explained, I said, you know, instead of doing that, you could have the best hotels in the world right there. Think of it from a real estate perspective. You have South Korea, you have China, and they own the land in the middle. How bad is that, right? It's great. At the same
1: time Trump was making these ridiculous statements, he also spoke some truth about the U.S. hostility toward North Korea.
4: It's a very provocative uh, situation. when, When I see that and you have a country right next door, so under the circumstances that we're negotiating a very comprehensive, complete deal, I think it's inappropriate to be having war games. In a way, this reminds me of that
1: now, infamous interview, you've heard it a few times on this show, that Trump did with Bill O'Reilly, where he said there are a lot of killers in the world.
4: A lot of killers. we got a lot of killers. Why do you think our country's so innocent?
1: Sometimes Donald Trump is accidentally right, often for the wrong reasons. But if he can pull all U.S. troops from South Korea, that's a good thing, especially if it's done with the support and counsel and involvement of President Moon. The U.S. has tried belligerence. It's tried threats. It's tried permanent war. It's tried apocalyptic war gaming. Now let's try something different. Let's actually defer to Koreans on what they want and how they believe this war can finally end and how they believe that the real threats can be eliminated. At the end of the day, Trump is sort of a means to an end for many Koreans who have spent their lives fighting to end the scourge of war, fighting to be reunified with their families. It's not our place to stand in the way. Joining me now to discuss the Trump-Kim summit is Christine Hong. She is associate professor at UC Santa Cruz and an executive board member of the Korea Policy Institute. Christine Welcome to Intercepted. Thank you. First, just your reaction. What is the significance of not only this meeting, but the document that they signed?
0: You know, I mean, a lot of people are saying in the media that this document is really flimsy. But I have to say that this is historically momentous. Never before has a sitting U.S. president had a meeting with the north korean head of state and so even in terms of the symbolism of it all it's hugely important but the other thing that happened was that donald trump actually made some pretty serious structural concessions and so this is just to back up a little bit in the lead up to the summit North Korea took a number of good faith measures. Not only did North Korea release three Korean Americans who were imprisoned in North Korea for committing hostile acts, but also it destroyed its nuclear testing site in Pungiri. It effectively placed a moratorium on all of its nuclear testing. Two. One.
5: I'm here at North Korea's nuclear test site at Ri, a place that foreign journalists have never been allowed before, and we are here, the North Korean government says, to witness the destruction of this site. They say it will never be able to be used again.
0: And so we should realize that throughout the Barack Obama presidency, North Korea put forth a measure which has been wrongly attributed in the mainstream media to China and Russia of a freeze for a freeze proposal. And it proposed to the United States during the Obama administration that if the United States suspended its large scale war games with its ally, South Korea, that North Korea was willing to suspend its nuclear testing. And we have to understand what these war exercises are. Chuck Hagel, under Barack Obama, who claimed that these war exercises were just business as usual. And these war exercises, which are staged annually, they're the largest in the world. They simulate the invasion and occupation of North Korea. They um, simulate a nuclear first strike against North Korea. And they also practice the decapitation of North Korea's leadership. And we cannot imagine the United States being fine with Cuba and Russia conducting these kinds of war exercises off the United States coast. And historically, North Korea has said these are incredibly provocative. They're just a hair's breadth away from the actual prosecution of war. The United States has poo-pooed these kinds of claims. All of a sudden, we see Donald Trump in a kind of tit for tat measure, meeting good faith measure with good faith measure, indicating that he's willing to suspend these um, war games. And he actually called them provocative.
1: When I was watching Kim Jong-un act somewhat deferential to Donald Trump and then talking to Korean friends, uh, what I learned was that what Kim Jong-un was doing is actually the culturally appropriate manner to behave with someone who is older than you. And I was so impressed by Kim Jong-un's statement when he sat down with Trump and was speaking uh, where he said, It has not been easy to come to this point. For us, the past has been holding us back, and old practices and prejudices have been covering our eyes and ears, but we've been able to overcome everything to arrive here today. If that was an accurate translation of what he said, that is... More articulate than any sentence Trump has ever uttered, probably in his life.
0: I mean, you're absolutely right. There is a kind of respect for one's elders that is part and parcel of Korean culture, whether you're from the north or the south. And you could say that when Kim Jong Un met with Moon Jae In, the president of South Korea, you could see similar sort of patterns and you know a kind of behavior of respect toward one's elder. You know, when Kim Jong Un was speaking, he was speaking as the head of a society that has only known one policy uh, from the United States, and that has been an unceasing policy of regime change. And we have to recall that, you know, he's sitting across from the person who threatened just last year to rain down fire and fury like the world has never seen before on North Korea.
4: They will be met with fire and fury, like the world has never seen.
0: Who stood before the United Nations, you know, stated that he was willing to totally destroy North Korea. Of course, you know, human rights experts who were there in in the audience understood this to be a crucial statement of intention, which is essential for understanding the legal definition of genocide. And so they're sitting across from someone who didn't seem to have any historical awareness who actually had the prerogative and the privilege of amnesia with regard to what the United States actually did to North Korea in the middle part of the 20th century, which is to say that the United States, which commanded control of the skies over the Korean peninsula, rained down fire and fury like the world had never seen before on North Korea.
1: And of course, as as you well know, Christine, at the time of the what is called the Korean War, there were a half a dozen to 16 or 17 cities that had been established in what is now North Korea, and all of them were entirely obliterated by the United States. The U.S. was by far the greatest aggressor in that war. Seventy percent of uh, North Koreans killed in that war were civilians. And as I watched the media coverage in the United States, you would think that the opposite was true. You would think that it is North Korea that has been threatening regime change, that it was North Korea that had committed massive war crimes against the United States. And there were war crimes committed against US personnel. But my God, who were, who was the greatest victim of that war? Ordinary North Koreans, who was the great aggressor of that war? The United States.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you bring up a number of really critical points. You know, I mean, the fact of the matter is that North Korea, to borrow a phrase from Arundhati Roy, is a country that was sculpted from the spare rib of America's aggressive foreign policy. And we have to recall, like, you know, you're saying like 70% of the Koreans who were killed North or South during that, uh, the hot fighting period of what we call the Korean War were civilians, as you said. And with regard to North Korea, the estimates are staggering. I mean, there was nothing left to bomb. That's what the bombers actually stated civilian infrastructure was totally taken out. That's against the laws of war. Um, And, you know, On Pyongyang alone, that was a city that only had 400,000 occupants at that time. The United States unleashed over 420,000 bombs on that city. That's more than one per person. That's the very definition of overkill. This is what the historian Bruce Cummings calls a bombing holocaust. You cannot go to North Korea and meet anyone whose family wasn't personally impacted by the aggressive war violence of the Korean War that uh, at the Nuremberg trials and also in the Rome statute of the International Criminal Court, the crime of crimes held above genocide, held above crimes against humanity, is aggressive war or war against the peace. This is a kind of crime that Powers that are historically imperialist, including the United States, these wars of intervention are almost always crimes against the peace. But there is a culture of impunity about them.
1: How long has that bipartisan sort of love affair with the idea of total destruction of Korea been in place?
0: we're stretching back to Truman. We're talking about Truman who, as an explicit part of his war policy against North Korea, slapped sanctions three days into the Korean War on North Korea. We're talking about Truman who entertained the possibility of nuclear annihilation you know, against North Korea multiple times. The United States has threatened North Korea with nuclear annihilation on countless occasions. So I would say that the apocalyptic American imagination toward North Korea, it goes back decades. And if we're going to talk about sort of more recent times, I mean, you could just see that recently, it was something like seven Democratic senators issued a statement protesting Donald Trump's efforts to sort of move from War footing, fire and fury footing to peace footing. And there's something so incredibly ridiculous about this. When you're talking about this bipartisan consensus, I mean, we have to recognize that Trump has a businessman's approach to the military industrial complex. And there are structural contradictions that complicate the prospect of peace even being realized. One of them is the fact that Trump has basically an austerity program when it comes to any kind of social spending. He, like his predecessor Barack Obama, supports the trillion-plus dollar renovation of America's nuclear arsenal. All of these things make the prospect of meaningful denuclearization as something that is a reciprocal obligation complicated. You know, Barack Obama, who came into office promising that he would reach out a hand if America's historic foes uncurled their fists. And he, you know, did so, you know, we could say to some degree with regard to Iran and Cuba. But with regard to North Korea, he maintained a studiously hard line. So let's get cynical and ask why that was. Well, actually, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, his secretary of state, viewed the Asia-Pacific region as the signature arena of their foreign policy. And their foreign policy was a pivot policy to Asia and the Pacific. And what it entailed was, you know, in viewing Asia as America's economic future, this is a very old imperialist fantasy, you know, um, they basically authorized the relocation of 60% of American naval f- power from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And they basically, like almost every single document that was released by the Pentagon, authorizing accelerated weapon sales, any kind of agreement that was made between the United States and its regional allies for bilateral, lateral, trilateral, multilateral war exercises, any kind of deployment of any kind of military defense system, the stationing of nuclear um, aircraft carriers etc. All of that was done during the Barack Obama era in the name of a hostile and nuclear-armed North Korea.
1: Just to add to that, and Chuck Schumer, the leader of the Democrats Mm -hmm. in the Senate, released a very belligerent statement threatening more sanctions and denouncing the Trump-Kim summit.
0: It doesn't surprise me at all. So there's this kind of Liberal consensus around the prospect of war with North Korea. And so, interestingly enough, we have this kind of situation in which North Korea, which had no possible room for maneuver in terms of diplomacy because there was no diplomatic channel as an option during the Obama era, it basically took to the pathway of a nuclear deterrent. And let's recall that also during the George W. Bush era, North Korea was placed on a short axis of evil list of permissible nuclear first strikes.
2: States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes pose a grave and growing danger
0: So from the axis of evil era to Barack Obama, North Korea has not been able to come out of the cold. Interestingly enough, Trump, who has an ego investment in reversing his predecessor's policies is actually, and even on the campaign trail, there's a certain kind of consistency. He's been open to the prospect of some kind of hamburger diplomacy with North Korea. And of course, as you're saying, why isn't this a good thing? The other thing that I'm going to mention, too, is that you mentioned this kind of cynical use of human rights. You know, the fact of the matter is, let's be real about how that human rights industry consolidated around North Korea. You know, in the post-Cold War era, these organizations that had during the late Cold War period brought defectors from the socialist bloc to the United States. And, you know, the um, legal scholar Samuel Moyne states that in the late Cold War period, what happened was U.S. human rights as a state discourse was basically anti-communism by another name. And so these kinds of like Cold Warrior institutions were renovated as human rights institutions. And under the axis of evil policy of George W. Bush, they took a very hard line. And what did they advocate for? These so-called human rights organizations, and there was a bipartisan consensus. It was, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike. They were basically advocating for fortified sanctions, sanctions that were meant at targeting the livelihood of people. Right. I mean, these these sanctions are not meant as a surgical blow against the leadership of any country. They're meant as a sort of general destabilizing strategy, soft war strategy that's aimed at making life so unlivable that in theory they might rise up against their leadership. And so basically sanctions are a humanitarian catastrophe.
1: When you look at sanctions that target leaders or powerful business people in countries those kinds of economic sanctions are in fact targeted at powerful people but the kind of sanctions that you're talking about and that were applied to North Korea as they've been applied to Iran as they were applied to murderous effect in Iraq the idea is a strangulation policy and it's totally bankrupt it was it's the bankruptcy of the entire Cuba policy too the idea you can starve blackmail, threaten, punish people into rising up. There's no evidence that that is an effective policy and a lot of evidence that it's actually a criminal policy.
0: So-called human rights advocates, in their desire to ascribe singular blame to the North Korean leadership, they never take into consideration hostile war policy and how that impacts the livelihood of North Korean people.
1: Well, and of course, we saw John Bolton, who has been one of the absolute most belligerent Americans on earth toward North Korea. When Kim Jong-chol visited the White House recently, one of the uh, most senior and high ranking uh, officials in North Korea, John Bolton, we understand, was not allowed into that meeting. But Bolton certainly was sitting there with Trump and Kim Jong-un. And there was some speculation that both he and Mike Pence sought to derail this whole process by raising the specter of Libya and engaging in somewhat uh, outright hawkish rhetoric. But does it concern you that there seems to be this radical disconnect? You have Trump, who seems to be going in one direction, and then you have John Bolton, who is his national security advisor and one of the most sort of villainous hawks, pugnacious individuals in the world on North Korea.
0: Also seated at that table was Choe who is North Korea's foreign minister. And um, what she stated in a statement that actually just sort of enraged initially Donald Trump was basically that Mike Pence was a political dummy and that the discussion of, you know, the Libya model was meant to derail any sort of discussion of denuclearization and peace. The fact of the matter, though, is if we were to put ourselves in North Korea's shoes, who would you rather have at the negotiating table? Would you rather have someone who has no power whatsoever, like Rex Tillerson, who doesn't command the confidence of the American president? Or would you rather actually have your worst possible enemy? You know, and North Korea in just recent weeks has actually referred to to Bolton as repellent, you know, a kind of characterization that I think that many Americans would agree with. But they would rather have that repellent member of Trump's war cabinet there at the peace table than someone who who can't make anything happen.
1: Right. And the role of Moon Jae-in is, oh, it, yeah. is very seldom discussed or gone into in detail in US news coverage that I've seen. I mean, I was up uh, all night during the summit watching this and it it seems to me that Moon Jae-in should be getting a tremendous amount of the credit for even getting to the the world to a point where an American president can be talking to the leader of North Korea, something that has, uh, face to face, something that has never happened in the history of these two countries.
0: This is not the first time that we've seen the leaders of the two Koreas when there's been a liberal in the blue house in Seoul. It's not the first time that we've seen an attempt by the leaders of Korea to actually effect some kind of rapprochement, to effect some kind of reconciliation, to actually march toward peace only to be stymied and obstructed by the United States. So there's always been this triangulated relationship. And let's keep in mind that South Korea is semi-sovereign at best. Um, In times of heightened war crisis, South Korea actually doesn't even command its own military forces. They go under the command control of the United States. Also, according to the terms of the Korean War Armistice Agreement, All foreign powers were supposed to remove their forces within a reasonable window of time. China removed its forces within about five years' time. The United States... To this day, stations roughly 30,000 forces south of the DMZ. It operates approximately 80 military installations. According to a series of mutual defense treaties and a status of forces agreement, the United States can, at women at will, use any South Korean base. And so South Korea is really semi-sovereign at best, but we see the South Korean leader moving forward as a proponent of peace, and we have to ask why. Well, we have to realize that his neoconservative, corrupt, and neoliberal predecessor who basically wielded the draconian national security law in South Korea against the South Korean people who basically pushed through a series of neoliberal policies that placed the South Korean people, their lives at risk, made them vulnerable en masse, And who also, in lockstep with Barack Obama, who was friends with every single hawk in the Asia-Pacific region, actually maintained a hardline posture toward North Korea. What happened was the South Korean people in 2016 took to the streets in millions in these candlelight protests. They filled the streets and they called for ouster. Place is
3: packed here in downtown Seoul. There are people of all ages. You have families, you have children, you have a remarkably large amount of of high school students and and university students, and then of course going all the way up to the elderly. So all ages, but just... One simple message: Dang with
0: Park. She was ousted. She's now sitting in prison. And in the snap election, Moon Jae-in was elected. He was elected to push for peace. He has an eighty-five percent approval rating in South Korea for his North North Korea policy. When Donald Trump was even entertaining the possibility of a bloody nose strike against North Korea, when he was entertaining the possibility of any kind of military option toward North Korea, South Koreans also understood that any anti-North Korea policy on the part of the United States and any military option is effectively an anti-Korean policy. And it would mean, you know, it's basically a a kind of policy that demonstrates that Korean lives don't matter. So, you know, Moon Jae-in has the popular authority, unlike this wave of right-wing populism that you see around the world, he actually has progressive populist authority to push for peace. And so the thing that I think is important to watch for is that a number of South Korean labor um, unions have come forward. And what they've stated is that it's not enough for the leadership of the Koreas to declare a kind of peace process, but that the peace process has to involve workers and that workers are essential to any kind of vision of reunification and peace.
1: Christine, thank you so much for uh, the work you've done and for joining us on Intercepted. It was a pleasure. Christine Hong is associate professor at UC Santa Cruz. She's also an executive board member of the Korea Policy Institute. One of my favorite big-picture thinkers on issues of war is Tom Englehart. He is the editor of the popular website, TomDispatch.com. He publishes many authors, some of which you've heard on this show, among them Professor Alfred McCoy, military historian Andrew Bacevich. Tom also edits books and writes them, and he has a new book out just in time for summer. It's called A Nation Unmade by War. In it, Tom argues that despite having a more massive, technologically advanced and better funded military than any other power on the planet, the United States has won nothing. And that includes in the past decade and a half of unending wars across the greater Middle East and parts of Africa. Tom argues that these constant U.S. wars have only contributed to a world growing more chaotic by the second. We asked Tom to adapt the introduction of his new book into an essay for us. Here is Tom Engelhardt.
6: The cost of America's war on terror from September 12, 2001 through fiscal year 2018. A cool $5.6 trillion. On average, that's at least $23,386 per taxpayer. In reality, the costs of America's wars are incalculable and still spreading in the Trump era. Just look at photos of Ramadi or Mosul in Iraq, Raqqa or Aleppo in Syria, Sirte in Libya or Marawi in the southern Philippines. Those views of mile upon mile of rubble, often without a building still standing untouched, should take anyone's breath away. Some of those cities may never be fully rebuilt. Try to put a price on them. And how could you even begin to put a dollars and cents value on the larger human costs of those wars? The hundreds of thousands of dead, the tens of millions of people displaced in their own countries or sent as refugees, fleeing across any border in sight. How could you factor in the way masses of uprooted peoples in the greater Middle East and Africa are unsettling other parts of the planet? In the end, what might be the cost of that?
2: How would you project us around the world as president it really depends upon how the, our nation conducts itself in foreign policy if we're an arrogant nation they'll they'll resent us if we're a humble nation but strong they'll welcome us and uh, that's, our nation is uh, stands uh, stands alone right now in the world in terms of power and that's why we've got, we've got to be humble and uh, and yet project strength in a in a way that promotes freedom. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think they'll look at us in any way other than what we are. We're a freedom loving nation, and if we're an arrogant nation, they'll. they'll... Even on a budget, quality is non
1: negotiable. That's why Quinn's has the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.
6: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
2: View us that way, but if we're a humble nation, they'll respect us. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom, came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts.
6: America's never-ending 21st century conflicts were triggered by the decisions of George W. Bush and his top officials. They instantly defined their response to the attacks of 9-11 by a tiny group of jihadis as a war. The search is underway
2: for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them."
6: Then proclaimed it nothing short of a global war on terror. With dreams of dominating the greater Middle East, and ultimately the planet as no other imperial power had ever done.
2: Saddam Hussein is harboring terrorists and the instruments of terror, the instruments of mass death and destruction.
6: There is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. Any country on the face of the earth with an active intelligence program knows that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Their overwrought geopolitical fantasies and their sense that the U.S. military was a force capable of accomplishing anything they willed it to do launched a process that would cost this world of ours in ways that no one will ever
2: be able to calculate. We cannot wait for the final proof, the smoking gun, that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. The United States of America will not permit the world's most dangerous regimes to threaten us with the world's most destructive weapons.
6: In the aftermath of those decisions, who could begin to put a price on the futures of the children whose lives would be twisted and shrunk in ways frightening even to imagine? Who could tote up what it means for so many millions of this planet's young to be deprived of homes, parents, educations, of anything approximating the sort of stability that might lead to a future worth imagining? Though few may remember it, I've never forgotten the 2002 warning issued by Amr Musa, then head of the Arab League. That September, he predicted that an invasion of Iraq would open the gates of hell.
3: But we'll continue to work to avoid a military confrontation or a military action because we believe that it will open the gates of hell in the Middle East.
6: Two years later, In the wake of the actual invasion and the U.S. occupation of that country, he altered his comments slightly. The gates of hell, he said, are open in Iraq. His assessment has proven unbearably prescient, and one not only applicable to Iraq. Fourteen years after that invasion, we should all now be in some kind of mourning for a world that won't ever be. It wasn't just the U.S. military that passed through those gates to hell. In our own way, we all did. Otherwise, Donald Trump wouldn't have become president. I don't claim to be an expert on hell. I have no idea what circle of it we're now in. But I do know one thing. We are there. If I could bring my parents back from the dead right now, I know that this country in its present state would boggle their minds. They wouldn't recognize it. If I were to tell them that just three men, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren buffett now possess as much wealth as the bottom half of the U.S. population of 160 million Americans, they would never believe me. How could I begin to explain to them the ways in which money flowed ever upward into the pockets of the immensely wealthy? and then down again into what became 1% elections, including one that would finally ensconce a billionaire and his family in the White House. How would I explain to them that leading congressional Democrats and Republicans couldn't say often enough that this country was uniquely greater than any that had ever existed, but none of them could find the funds? some $5.6 trillion, for starters, necessary for our roads, dams, bridges, tunnels, and other crucial infrastructure. And this on a planet where what the news likes to call extreme weather is increasingly wreaking havoc on that same infrastructure. My parents wouldn't have thought such things possible. Not in America. I'd have to explain to them that they had returned to a nation which has increasingly been unmade by war, though few Americans realize it. The conflicts Washington's war on terror triggered have now morphed into the wars of so many and have, in the process, changed us. Such conflicts on the global frontiers have a tendency to come home in ways that can be hard to track or pin down. After all, unlike those cities in the greater Middle East, ours aren't yet in ruins, though some of them may be heading in that direction, even if in slow motion. This country is, at least theoretically, still near the height of its imperial power, still the wealthiest nation on the planet. And yet it should be clear enough by now that we've crippled not just other nations, but ourselves in ways that I suspect we can still barely see or grasp. The world is a mess. The world is as angry as it gets. Well, you
4: think this is going to cause a little more anger? The world is an angry place. All of this has happened. Uh, We went into Iraq. We shouldn't have gone into Iraq. We shouldn't have gotten out the way we got out. The world is a total
6: mess. Give him credit where it's due. It took Donald Trump. To make us begin to grasp that we were living in a different and evolving world. Without the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq and what followed, I doubt he would have been imaginable as anything but the host of a reality TV show or the owner of a series of failed casinos. And none of this would have been imaginable if George W. Bush, Dick Cheney and co. hadn't felt the urge to launch the wars that led us through those gates of hell. Their soaring geopolitical dreams of global domination proved to be nightmares of the First Order. They imagined a planet unlike any in the previous half-millennium of imperial history in which a single power would basically dominate everything until the end of time. And here was the result of their conceptual overreach. Never has a great power, still in its imperial prime, proven quite so incapable of applying its military and political might in a way that would advance its aims. It's a strange fact of this century that the U.S. military has been deployed across vast swaths of the planet and somehow, again and again, has found itself overmatched by underwhelming enemy forces and incapable of producing any results other than destruction and further fragmentation. In the end, the last empire may prove to be an empire of nothing at all. The only thing our leaders and generals have seemed capable of doing, starting from the day after the 9-11 attacks, is more or less the same thing, with the same dismal results. Again and again. The U.S. military and the national security state that those wars emboldened have become a staggeringly well-funded blowback machine. In all these years... While three administrations pursued the spreading war on terror, America's conflicts in distant lands were largely afterthoughts to its citizenry. Once the invasion of Iraq occurred, the protests died out, and ever since, Americans have generally ignored their country's wars, even as the blowback began. Someday, they will have no choice but to pay attention.
1: Tom Engelhart created and runs the TomDispatch.com website. It's a project of the Nation Institute, where Tom is also a fellow. He's the author of The United States of Fear, Shadow Government, and The American Way of War. His latest book is A Nation Unmade by War. All of those are published by Haymarket Books. Remember back in December, the Republican tax bill eliminated Obamacare's individual mandate, but GOP leaders are far from finished. In their enduring pursuit to completely kill Obamacare, the Trump administration argued in a court brief that was filed last Thursday that, quote, a ban on insurers denying coverage and charging higher rates to people with pre-existing conditions is unconstitutional. That popular provision under the Affordable Care Act was aimed at stopping insurance companies from denying or stripping the health care benefits of people with pre-existing conditions. It also sought to protect people from being charged higher premiums if they are sick. Upwards of 130 million people under the age of 65 have pre-existing health conditions, and they could lose access to their health coverage if Trump and the Republicans prevail in court. According to the nonprofit healthcare policy group, the Kaiser Family Foundation, this lawsuit creates more uncertainty for insurers who may respond by increasing premiums. Already, Americans pay two to three times more for healthcare than other industrialized countries. As a nation, we spend nearly 20% of our GDP on healthcare. And while the U.S. dedicates more economic resources to healthcare, every year we seem to get less and less for what we pay. To talk about all of this and the horrid state of healthcare in the United States, I'm joined by Elizabeth Rosenthal. She is the editor in chief at Kaiser Health News. She's also the author of An American Sickness How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Elizabeth Rosenthal, welcome to Intercepted.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: You know, I, I I've been trying to find for years an example of another nation, industrialized nation on earth that has had demonstrations against healthcare as we've seen in this country. Have you ever found another example of a so-called civilized society demonstrating against healthcare?
3: Well, people from other countries look at what's going on in the United States and they they just can't believe it in terms of healthcare. They say, "Why do you guys put up with this? Shouldn't healthcare just be like water and air, and electricity. So I think, yes, there's a, a kind of sense of disbelief in the rest of the world about how we treat health care. But I think what we saw after the elections last year was that people are not so much demonstrating against health care. And this is, I think, part of the problem with our narrative, that they say, well, we don't want to be forced to buy insurance. We don't want to pay for health care. That's not true. Everyone wants health care. When you're nine months pregnant, you need to deliver a baby. When you're having crushing chest pain, you need to have a an emergency room and potentially surgery. But we don't want the kind of crazy health care system we're engaged in today. And it's so politicized that we're confusing, like, are you right or you left with do you want health care? People want health care. Then why
1: do you think people seem to be against Obamacare writ large? I mean, if you but if you break it down into individual pieces, it seemed like there was a lot more support for aspects of it when it was removed from the name Obamacare or was removed from it's the Democrats' health care plan. What is the issue that you see many people being nervous about or against that drives that?
3: Well, I think it's a lack of understanding, largely. I mean, what's happened over the last 25 years is our health care system has become so complicated and so messy and so expensive that people don't understand really how it works. So they don't understand, you know, when there was this whole narrative about we've got to, you know, repeal and replace Obamacare with something better. A lot of people who were like, yeah, do it, didn't understand that their health insurance was coming from Obamacare, right? So, so there's the, it's such a convoluted system that people don't know either who to blame when it doesn't work or who to thank when it does. And, of course, part of that is caught up in the partisan politics in the U.S., where everything connected to Obama was, was negative for a certain group of people. So, you know, when the ACA was enacted and when it went out and when Medicaid was expanded in a number of states and a lot of people got insurance for the first time, literally tens of millions of people – Even the Obama administration was a little reluctant to kind of label it Obamacare for fear that people would would react badly to it. So, again, you know, what we saw in those town hall meetings uh, last year was people standing up and saying, oh, wait a second. Yeah, I voted against it, but I didn't understand that my Medicaid expansion or my insurance subsidy, that's Obamacare, too. Your constituents do not want you to repeal ACA, will you have the guts to go against the Republicans in
0: your party and the president and, and stand with us and say no?
2: I'm on Obamacare.
0: Yay. If
2: it wasn't for Obamacare, we wouldn't be able to afford
5: insurance. I can't put all my trust in someone saying, we're gonna make a plan, but we've had six years and we don't have the plan. Mm-hmm.
7: Exactly,
3: good question. So we need a lot of depolitization of healthcare in this country because ultimately it's not a political issue. It's a rights issue or it's just a need issue you cannot do without health care.
1: What are the main forces that are driving up the cost of prescription drugs, healthcare in general? You write in your book about the cost of hospital stays just going up somewhat exponentially. What, what's driving all of this?
3: Well, we trust in the market to price health care in this country, and it, it isn't a market. You know, we like to say it's a market, but of course... You look at hospital bills, $3,000 for a screw, $15,000 for an infusion of an antibiotic. Basically, so there are no downward forces on the price of prescription drugs, the price of hospitalizations, the price of devices, the price of everything. And I think that's partly why I wrote the book, which is because people want a bad guy. They want to say, oh, it's pharma or, oh, it's the doctors or, oh, it's the hospitals. And it's everyone. Everyone is feeding at this trough of a healthcare industry that's hugely profitable, that's hugely powerful. The biggest lobbying in in Washington comes from them. And guess what? The food in that trough is our health, and that's not okay by me. What's
1: the status of the uh, Republican-slash-Trump administration effort to totally Demolish Obamacare because they they weren't able to to run the deck completely, but it seems to be something that uh, many Republicans on the Hill and within the Trump administration are interested in. What's the status of that?
3: You know, there continue to be a lot of efforts to kind of kneecap the the Affordable Care Act in different ways. There's a lot of promises to well, we're going to do something different and better about controlling prices with transparency, putting, for example, prices on drug ads that we see on TV. They're trying to move towards a more market-based approach. They're trying to undo some of the uh, subsidies and the mandates that went with Obamacare. I think time will tell how successful that effort at piecemeal deconstruction is. It's not going to go away. And what we see is that as the federal government says, nah, you know, we're not going to make people buy insurance. A lot of states are saying, wait, we are. We're going to reinstate that because it is crucial to making an effective health insurance system work in this country. Now, I don't know that it's going to be enough because even with the mandate, even with all the the rules that went along with Obamacare and the preventive care that had to be covered, things like that. It didn't really tackle this pricing issue head on. I'm a little skeptical that without further measures, we're going to get to where we need to be. And we are paying two to three times more for health care than every other developed country. So, you know, we can do a lot better.
1: Yeah. In fact, in uh, An American Sickness, you write, in the past quarter century, the American medical system has stopped focusing on health or even science. Instead, it attends more or less single-mindedly on its own profits. Expand on what you meant by that.
3: Well, I you know, I trained as a doctor about 25 years ago, so I care deeply about this profession. And what I saw uh, after I, I left many years ago for journalism was kind of slow conversion to a business. Medicine has always been a little bit of a business, right? You had to keep your office open. But the health issues were on the front burner. What was right for the patient was on the front burner. But in my days of training, I started seeing these kind of business consultants coming into the hospital. Um, there was the HMO era in the 90s where hospitals were feeling kind of squeezed, and that's when we saw really the wholesale movement of business into healthcare. So you had consultants from Deloitte, from McKinsey, uh, moving into the healthcare arena and coming into hospitals and saying... You know, And these were not healthcare people. This could have been a chicken processing plant. They just said, oh, well, how can, how can we make more money doing what we're doing? And basically what the consultant said was, well, you can just bill differently, right? Why are you giving away that time in the recovery room for free? You know, you could bill by the minute. Why are you charging only, you know, five cents for the Tylenol or giving it away? You can charge $17 for it. There was no rationale for what things were charged or billed. And then, of course, you know, that kind of spiraled in an atmosphere where in earlier days, if you were lucky enough to have employer provided insurance, your employer was paying most of the premium. There wasn't a lot in the way of copays and deductibles. So we didn't look at our bills and we didn't notice that inflation going on. And now what we have is this hugely inflated pricing system. You know, we're paying our premiums, we're paying those deductibles and copays. And what's most worrisome to me and where I concluded in the book was that now the values of business are on the front burner and the values of health care are on the back burner. So what do hospitals look at when they're evaluating their CEO now? It's not infection rates. It's not cure rates. It's return on investment. It's profit, which in the nonprofit world you call surplus instead of profit. It's efficiency. And you know what? Those are not the values of health care. Those are the values of business. And so when I say, you know, the subtitle of the book is um how healthcare became big business and how you can take it back. When I say take it back what I mean is we've got to reverse that and have the values of healthcare on the front burner again.
1: How would a single payer system address some of the problems that you've identified with the cost of pharmaceuticals and the you know extreme for-profit nature of uh, of the healthcare system in this country?
3: You know, where it's used, it works quite well um, to control costs, but it's not the only option. I mean, basically, the way it works is to say, OK, if there's one big payer, the government, or maybe we could even look at a kind of modified single payer in Medicare, they have incredible bargaining power. So it brings down the price of of pharmaceuticals. It also brings down the prices of things like hospitalization. I mean, Medicare has set rates for hospitalizations, and they are far, far lower than what's paid in the commercial market. You know, hospitals may say, "Oh, they don't pay us enough; we can't exist this way." You know, Medicare uh, says, "Well, no, we're paying you cost plus. We're paying you what we think it costs to deliver the care plus a profit." So, you know, where between those two extremes will uh, a single payer would fall? I'm not quite sure. On the other hand, when hospitals say to me, oh, you know, we're, we're losing money or we're troubled, you know, we need, what, we need to be paid much more, go into your local hospital, look at the, you know, the marble in the lobby and the art. For the most part, there are struggling hospitals, but for the most part, our big hospital systems do not look like struggling institutions. They look like um, good businesses, which they are.
1: Right. Uh, one of the, the striking parts of your book was you were you were writing about fee schedules in, in a variety of countries, Germany, Japan, Belgium, and uh, this is a quote from your book. It is efficient. In the United States, doctors spend one-sixth of their time on administration and medical practices to hire extra staff to wrangle with insurers. A sonogram of the heart costs anywhere from 1000 to $8,000 in the United States, the 2014 negotiated fixed price in Japan and Belgium was under $150. Talk about that system and how it, it could work in the U.S.
3: <laughs> the divergence is so striking. I mean, so many things that in our country have literally like doubled, tripled, quadrupled in price have gone down just manifold in other countries. And why is that? It's because in a lot of other countries, and I'll point out that these are not all single-payer countries. Belgium is not, but there is price setting. Japan happens to be a single-payer country, and this just shows how meaningless the word is in and of itself. Japan is single payer, but hospitals and doctors are private. But what those two countries have is some form of massive price setting and price negotiation. And they they use some pretty interesting logic in that. For example, in Japan... They'll say, okay, if something new, whiz-bang technology comes on the medical market, you can charge a lot for it. We're going to discuss with you what it's worth and negotiate a price, but you can can get really good money for that. But guess what? As it gets older— it has to go down in price because that's the way markets should work because an MRI or a sonogram of the heart, which was, you know, revolutionary when I was training, yeah, they're pretty commonplace now. You can do them by the bedside. And so, yeah, maybe there are some machines that are the newest iteration, but most people don't need those, so we're not going to pay for them. And I think that's something we have been allergic to doing in this country and just that notion of as drugs get older as technology gets older the price should go down as it does in every aspect of our lives the opposite happens in american healthcare and that makes us exceptional unique and kind of suckers i think
1: given that you've studied this for so long and you yourself went to uh, medical school what would be a plausible scenario for US healthcare understanding the politics in Washington that would have the biggest that would make the biggest impact for the better in your view or that would improve the quality and cost of healthcare for a lot
3: of people in this country? I would say the first thing I think we could potentially tackle is drug pricing because you know in polling that's what people feel they want the government to do something about drug prices. Personally, I think it will be a winning issue for either party if they do it. You know, we have seen bipartisan bills that, for example, would allow importation from Canada. Um, we've seen a lot of state bills bubbling up now saying we're going to allow our citizens to import from Canada. We're going to review drug price hikes and try and see if we feel they're justified. Again, these are kind of fledgling efforts, but they're they're gathering steam There are so many different ways we could move. We could, for example, start lowering the age of Medicare. That would work. People, by and large, are satisfied as patients with Medicare, and they don't have these extreme out-of-pocket costs. Doctors traditionally didn't like Medicare payments. We crossed a bridge last year when the majority of the doctors, for the first time, said they they could live with a Medicare buy-in or Medicare-for-all system you know so we could go that route i predict the the next thing we're going to see which i would love to see way more of is more transparency and i want to emphasize that that's not an answer in and of itself but it's a tool through which we can start to rationalize pricing so if all hospitals have to tell me this is what we're charging for a colonoscopy this is what we're charging for a an appendectomy and give people estimates which they do in a lot of other countries right then no hospital would put up in the lobby, hey, we're charging $15,000 for a colonoscopy and 40000 for an appendectomy because people, insurers, companies would be running in the other direction. So I think we're going to see a lot of disruption through transparency, but it's not enough. It's a starting point. You really need state legislators, people in Washington to demand that transparency. Right, right now, hospital prices are guarded, and here we go with the the business of healthcare narrative again, as a trade secret, right? We don't want to tell others what we're charging because that's our proprietary information. I'm sorry, can my contractor say that if I want to redo my kitchen? No. So I think that first step of mandated transparency will be really important, but it it's only a first step. It will allow people to shop a little more. Companies, it will help them to be smarter purchasers of health care for their employees. We're wasting so much time, money, effort to give substandard healthcare. So we can do a lot better.
1: Indeed. Well, Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you very much for your work, not only at Kaiser Health News, but also uh, before that, deep investigations at The New York Times. I encourage everybody to read that series, Paying Till It Hurts. Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Elizabeth Rosenthal is the editor-in-chief at Kaiser Health News. She's also the author of An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business, and How You Can Take It Back. (music) To end today's show, we're going to hear from one of Lebanon's most celebrated independent musicians. I'm talking about Yasmin Hamdan. She's something of an icon in the Middle East ever since the days of her hugely popular band, Soapkills, which she co founded in the late 90s in Beirut at the end of that country's civil war. Her indie band was one of the first in the region to experiment with combining traditional Arabic music with electronic pop and folk music. And you may have seen Yasmin Hamdan in a memorable scene in the Jim Jarmish film, Only Lovers Left Alive.
7: Yeah, I see.
1: Her latest studio album, Al Jamilat, came out last year. And just this month, she's released Jamilat Reprise. It's a collection of reconstructions and remixes made by close collaborators, all of them distinguished artists and producers. Yasmin, welcome to Intercepted.
7: Hi, how are you? So I wanted to
1: start by asking you about the video, ballad, and have you explain it, because obviously the region of the world where you're from, and in fact, the country where you grew up, is involved with the war in Syria, is also dealing with the refugee situation. And this video is very, very powerful. Explain the idea behind the song and the video.
7: It's inspired by conversations I had with taxi drivers, and it's kind of talking about the intelligentsia yeah, about the statu quo in in our country, like the corruption, eventually and the tribal mode. Because <laughs> in Lebanon the government is not so present, so you have those families that's been that been around since years. And, you know, funny enough, people who made the civil war 40 years ago, they're still in power. So these people ha- are sucking the blood of, of yeah, the citizens. And so this song is about that. But it's also about a global situation. It's not about only Lebanon. It talks about this microcosm that is somehow in power everywhere and that controls the resources of countries. It's a global thing. It's uh, something about the world today.
1: So I wanted to ask you about your song, Deuce, and just share with our listeners some of the translated lyrics. Um, That war was thrown upon us, enmity you and I did not seek, wallowing in bitter strife. The spring for Arabs is here, feeding us slogans, lies, and deceits, all of which you and I did not seek. Talk about what you're saying in this song.
7: Well, I'm talking somehow about myself. I've only known war and difficulties. I mean, my country has always lived uh, so many dramas and I've been hoping for a better future. And every time you hope and you, you are deceived, but somehow I always search for hope. So this song is about hope. It's about finding the light in the middle of this darkness. I hate people that are in power in our countries. I really have no respect for them. I think they are corrupt and they are vampires. And all of them are thinking about their own interests. Nobody's doing anything for the country For the people, so I don't know where to start. Like the whole system, the way the country functions, is wrong. But there are so many amazing and beautiful individuals, and so this song is more talking about this spring, this hope.
1: You, um, when you talked about the spring, I, I know a lot of people in the Arab world were, uh, and in Muslim countries were very, very excited and energetic, and so many young people came into the streets. As you look back now, you know, seven years or so removed from the beginning of these uprisings in the Middle East, it seems like many countries have either gotten worse or they've been destroyed by war, violence, or authoritarian governments.
7: Yeah, it's sad. It's very sad to see that the outcome of those, at least for now, of those movements and oppositions to governments that time led to wars and conflicts. But I guess uh, we need more time. People have to be more educated about their rights, about their responsibilities about what it is to be a civilian what what it is to have civic rights and also how to absorb minorities and i when i say minorities i you know i'm referring to women and to lgbt etc and i mean we are struggling to be all united and work together in order to create change and i don't think a change is possible without Everybody involved. And so what I see today is a struggle between people who want change and who are working for constructing a better uh, future and other people who just are regressing. And we have a lot of men in power today in the Middle East. And that is a problem.
1: As you watch from the other side of the ocean that I'm talking to you from, and you see what's happening in the United States with Trump, what are your thoughts about this moment? Because Trump is sort of, when he went to Saudi Arabia, and he was touching that big glowing orb with all of those royals, I was I was thinking Trump is sort of, he's just like them. They're all the same kind of person in a way. And he he feels very comfortable, it seems, around despots, dictators, royals. But how does Trump course, seem to you? Of course, he's
7: like an African dictator. I mean, he's nuts. I don't understand, I mean, where he comes from. But what I see is a guy who's, whose heart is somewhere <laughs> not existing somewhere. I have no idea why he was elected. And some people explain to me. Sometimes it's uh, surreal. It's like a TV reality show. I follow him as if he wasn't comedy actor, I mean, but I also have uh, a lot of fear of the consequences of his actions. Uh, when I saw him with in Saudi Arabia doing this thing, it, it looked like, I don't know, a, a futuristic bad Serie B movie. Uh, But I knew that this was going to bring bad, you know, things in the region. And uh, it was right. I mean, a few weeks later, you know, we had problems and you had the Gulf crisis.
2: President Trump has sided with Saudi Arabia and its Arab partners against Qatar in a diplomatic dispute that is isolating Qatar and threatening Gulf
5: cooperation.
7: But, you know, every American president... Uh, has been a discovery for us. Like each time we're hoping that this guy is not going to be worse than the previous one, but then it's always worse. There's something that people don't understand, that we're all linked, and that Trump and before Trump, I mean, Americans have always had uh, their hands on the region and they've always tried to influence. And there's always this unequal and disrespectful relationship to the to the Middle East and to the Arab world. And so it created a lot of bad feelings. And so sometimes American don't realize how much harm the American policy has done to us. Our lives don't matter, really. I mean no no one cares and the Americans just don't we're like dehumanized and that's that creates a lot of problems, you know?
1: Mm. Talk about how your childhood shaped your music and who you are.
7: There was no narrative in my childhood, mm. so I didn't go to one school. I didn't grow up with a bunch of kids, and I don't feel like I belong to one only one place. I've always felt like somebody who's an insider, outsider, coming in like a guest, living, adopting things that allows me to, when I sing and compose my music, to feel the need to bring into my music different influences and different people. I also don't like it when it's just precisely like when you feel the identity of the music. I mean, at least for me, I feel like I want this to be a little bit more abstract. Uh, I want people to guess is this Arabic is this not Arabic is this this or that because the fact that you can question also allows you to have different people from different culture to eventually be able to project themselves or identify to this music and this music can have different colors
1: When you get on stage and you are performing, you know, I'm sure it's different in different places, but what is the vibe, the environment that you try to create in your performances?
7: Like, I don't try to create anything. I'm just, it's a process. It's something very personal, and uh, I I like very much being on stage, because I get to challenge myself and get out of some comfort zones and I also like to connect with people and many times I do perform in, in front of audiences that don't understand Arabic and I never felt that the language is a checkpoint, I've always felt that it was in a way something that is about transmission, it's about communication. <laughs> Actually, I never listen to music by listening to the lyrics. I listen to the emotion, I listen to the what it gives me. It's a sensual thing, so I try to communicate this sensuality through the music and through the artistic proposition. When I perform in front of audiences that speak Arabic, okay, there's the dimension of lyrics, and I do have a lot of hints, a lot of humor, and I do mix politics, sexuality etc things that really I care about and I also have a lot of inspiration from all over Arab countries, Arab cultures it makes me travel and I want people to travel with me
1: Oh Yasmin Hamdan, we uh, we all really appreciate your music and also your ideas, your creativity and your principles. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Yasmin Hamdan is a much celebrated international artist, singer, songwriter. She is originally from Lebanon, but she's lived in many countries. Her latest albums are Jamilat and Jamilat Reprise. Make sure to check out and support her work. And that does it for this week's show. Once again, remember, Thursday, June 21st, 7 p.m., we are having a live edition of this program, Intercepted. It's at the Music Hall of Williamsburg. More information can be found on that at theintercept.com slash tickets. That's theintercept.com slash tickets. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. You can also check out our Twitter feed, which is simply at Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro. And our executive producer is Leetal Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Emily Kennedy does our transcripts. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill.